Hey everybody, Larry Powell here, your host for Studio HFL, and this is HFL number 137, and this is another in a series of local, uh, of interviews rather, I did with local, and by local I'm referring to Indiana, Indianapolis, uh, Central Indiana region, and this is with Henry Leck. Henry is the founding, or the founder of the Indianapolis Children's Choir, and he's going to give us the uh, the lowdown on how this was created and how it has grown into one of the most amazing entities out there. So before we get to Henry's interview, of course, I have to tell you about the show sponsors. Messina Covers is not just any other case company. David Messina and Erica Howard design and produce some beautiful cases that fit both form and function. And you can choose your case design, fabric and trim color, add custom engraving, and more. And of course, you can find out more at MessinaCovers.net. Peter Pickett and his crack team of craftspeople are continually innovating and providing the trumpet community with spectacular options for stock and custom mouthpieces. He and Eric Murine can help you find just the right size to fit your needs, and you should definitely consider trying the acrylic cup and rim. And if you're in the market for a custom trumpet, then Peter and Eric can build a Blackburn trumpet just for you. Check them out at pickettblackburn.com. To stay current on what's going on with Studio HFL, you can follow me on social media on Facebook and Instagram, and you can watch the live and pre-recorded interviews on the YouTube channel. And while you're there, go ahead and subscribe. My first experience with a Hammond design mouthpiece has turned into a bit of obsession. There is something very comfortable about playing one of Carl's mouthpieces. The comfort, response, and sound are part of the HD experience. Try one of the stock mouthpieces or have Carl make you a custom one. Either way, everything is better in HD, and you can find out more at carlhammonddesign.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, I hope you are, I would love it if you would take just a couple of minutes and go to Apple Podcasts to leave a star rating and a review. Doing so will help improve the visibility of this podcast and draw more listeners. When I first tried an Eastman B-flat trumpet, I was blown away by both the playability and the sound. And the more I found out about the company and got to know the people, I knew that this was a company I wanted to have a relationship with. There is a drive for excellence in design and production of every instrument, not just the high-end products. And the proof of this is that the one and only Doc Severinsen helped to design the Eastman beginner trumpet model. I still play that B-flat and have added a spectacular cornet and flugelhorn to my arsenal, you can find out more at eastmanwens.com. I'd love it if you'd visit the Studio HFL website and sign up for the weekly newsletter. And while you're there, you can also visit the merch page and buy a Studio HFL shirt for yourself and as a gift for someone else. Of course, you can do that at studiohfl.com. My current situation with my C trumpet is a bit ridiculous. My Shire C, which Samantha Lane helped me trial and choose, is the most versatile C I've ever played. The same goes for the new Destino designed by Doc. This horn sizzles when I need it to sizzle and is as smooth as silk when I wear my sil uh, never mind. Uh, anyway, the line of Shire's trumpets includes the Q series, which are production models, and the custom series. Either way you go, you'll love the sound you get, and you'll also experience exceptional customer service. Find out more at seshires.com. Here's how you can access exclusive content like the interview excerpts. I'd like to invite you to become a part of the Studio HFL community by going to Patreon and choosing from one of the four tiers of support. 
You can help to financially support the show for as little as $36 a year. That's only $3 a month. Benefits include exclusive access to interview excerpts, a behind-the-scenes report, an invitation to be in the room with a guest during an interview, product discounts, and more. You can join the community of faithful supporters by visiting patreon.com slash studiohfl. And now, on with the interview. Well, you know, the reason I mentioned Eleanor Bracetti is she celebrated her 90th birthday this June. Really? Where does and, she live now? Uh, just outside of San Francisco. And so we had plans because Jenny was one of her students uh, mm-hmm. through Suzuki. And she was having this big birthday. She was going to have this big birthday celebration. We had plans to fly out there and spend like a week in San Francisco. Of course, right. all of that fell through. And what right. they ended up doing was a Zoom meeting. Oh. But it was early on in Zoom. And there were a lot of people who had no idea. It's like the first time my mom got a hold of uh, a remote control. (laughs) And uh, so it was just, it was kind of funny. I mean, we finally worked it out here, but, and they finally worked it out for her birthday, but um, it's, it's a pleasure to to see you. And before we get off the topic, um, Eleanor was really special. And I, um, have two daughters that studied violin and so they we would go to her home which i think was right off of meridian somewhere there in that in the governor home area there someplace and so we'd go to her home for lessons and eventually we went to u of i every saturday morning with the two kids and there was another woman who taught with her had blonde hair april Um, cole april cole what's happened to her i don't know i i took string methods from her at und that's that's how i know her she uh they were really good uh, the kids yeah. were there for about three hours every saturday morning and they would uh april would teach music theory on the floor with cards and, <laughs> and that sort of thing but um you may not know this about me but i'm so old that i actually studied with dr suzuki i was one of his american students that's <laughs> fantastic I, i'm a cellist and uh, when i went to undergraduate school i went to stevens point uh, university of wisconsin stevens point and there was this, this woman by the name of Marjorie Aber who had taught strings in Detroit. And with a group of string teachers, they went to J- Japan and discovered Suzuki method and brought it back. And then when I was an undergraduate, I was in music ed. So I would teach alongside of her in the, in the, in the, the campus school. And that all we had at that time were the green books that were violin books. There was no Suzuki cello, no Suzuki harp, piano, flute, none of that. And I was a cellist. So I wrote out Lightly Row, Go Tell Aunt Rody, Minuet, all of those songs <laughs> for cello. And I think I probably am the first Suzuki cello teacher in the United States because it was after that that John Kendall came out with the books, the various books at the different yeah. level. Yeah. But when I taught it was these green books and they were all in Japanese. And then um, at that very same time, which was in the late 60s, we started the American Suzuki Institute in Stevens Point, Wisconsin. And Marge was my teacher. We used to go canoeing together. I one time dumped her in the water. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I have a strong Suzuki background. Well, that's fascinating. And uh, now my, uh, well, he's 11 today. One of my sons is, is his birthday today. He's 11, but he's just graduating book two. (laughs) And, and of course we're already listening to book three. And of course, Hillary Hahn just recorded 
all of the uh, all the Suzuki violin material, and of course, it's spectacular. Yeah. But I've been taking Jack to his lessons and group lessons uh, for the last couple of years, and I've become so enamored with Suzuki that I'm going. Well, I was going to get back in June get my certification. They now have Suzuki trumpet certification. Oh, interesting. So uh, hopefully it's going to happen again this coming June, and uh, you know, fingers crossed that we'll be able to to do that. But I I, I think Suzuki is brilliant. The the whole uh, sound before sight yes. concept is the problem is that and, and Suzuki method has great criticism because of this. Oh yeah, and, and what he understood and Marge understood so well is that we always learn at two different levels. We, we have oral learning and we have written or visual learning and they both have to be taught from the beginning on. And that's why Eleanor and April were so good because what happens is if kids progress quickly and they're playing by ear, they don't learn to sight read. And so sometimes you have players that could sit first chair in an orchestra but they can't read anything because <laughs> they, they can learn so fast in a microsecond when they've heard it once they can play it. So reading has to be taught very, very early on, mm -hmm. uh, but at a different, completely different level than what they're doing orally. And so mm -hmm. it's, it's a really interesting thing. So therefore Suzuki method has gotten a, a bad rap. You know, remember, do you remember when Suzuki was the concert master at ISO? Hidetaro, uh, uh, yes, yes. Hidetaro. Well, I talked to him several times about it. He hated Suzuki method and he actually studied with Suzuki but he felt like there were so many students who just had such poor reading capability because of the way teachers were teaching it. But I, before we get to this other interview, I yeah. think sometimes I've been a great teacher. Sometimes I've been a mediocre teacher. Sometimes I've been a terrible teacher. But on occasion, I've been a great teacher. And I attribute that to Suzuki. He taught in such a remarkable way. When I knew him, he was about 80 years old, smoked like a chimney. His wife was German, but he, as old as he was, he'd have these little kids and he'd be marching around the room and be up on a chair and down off the chair and kids would be following. He'd be laying on his back and playing. He made the holding and the playing of the instrument a natural extension of his body, but he always did it with enormous positivity and fun and uh, curiosity. Uh, and I, I, when I'm really a good teacher, I know that I, I attribute a lot to, of that to him. So I, I'm gonna, we're gonna get to this, but I wanna see how this is gonna uh, relate to or transfer into uh, the children's choir. Yeah. Uh, because I, I have to imagine that there are parallels. There are, there's transference there. Yeah, enormous parallels. There. And I have a bridge between Suzuki and children's choir and that's the Kodai method. And that helped me a great deal. Um, when I started the children's choir, this is difficult to admit actually, but I had um, begun as a cello major and a voice major. And so my first teaching job in the late sixties, early seventies was grade seven through 12th grade orchestra and choir. So I've mm -hmm. always taught both really. I, and after I started my master's degree in University of Colorado, my wife and I were going out there in the summers and paying out of state tuition and uh, it was really high. So I said, I need to get residency in the state of Colorado. So I went to the Boulder Valley School's supervisor and I said, I'm interested in applying for a job. And he said, 
what do you want to do, choir or orchestra? And I said, I'll do either because I just want to get a job in this. <laughs> so he called the next spring and he said, I have a job for you, Henry. And I said, what's that? And he said, um, we're opening up a new high school. I'd like you to do the orchestra program. So when I went to Colorado for quite a long time, I was just an orchestra director. Wow. I could say only an orchestra director. Yeah. <laughs> orchestra and two junior high orchestras. And uh, so that's a long story in itself. But uh, as my life progressed, I ended up back, and back in the Midwest. And there's kind of a crucial year that occurred. And it was in 1986. I had been conducting, I was the assistant conductor of the symphonic choir. I had been preparing lots and lots of choirs for the symphony, for John Nelson, and so forth. And I went to John Nelson one day, sat down in his office, and I said, I think I'd like to become a professional orchestra conductor. Would, do you think I could do that? And he said, no. <laughs> I picked my jaw up off the floor and said, oh, well, okay. And he said, it has nothing to do with your musical capability. Or he said, you would be a great professional orchestra conductor, but you're too old. And oh. I, I was 40 years old at the time. And he said, you know, I've been conducting the ISO for 14 years. I had the Juilliard program. I did my debut in New York. He said, what they're hiring right now are young, like the Exxon Arts Endowment conductors, the young 22, 21 year olds, 23 year olds. He said, you're my age. And by the time you would go and get the proper training you need to, to be at that level, you'd be way too old. You'd be unhirable. So I suggest you do something else. So I said, oh, well, what about starting my doctorate at IU? And he said, I think that's a great idea. So he wrote a recommendation. I was accepted in 1986 that the doctoral program in choral conducting at, mm -hmm. in, in Indiana University. Weirdly enough, that very same time, I get a phone call from a guy named Jack Eaton, who was the dean. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. he said, Henry, I've heard about your work with the symphonic choir. Would you like to come and teach at Butler University? And I was, I had to pick myself up off the floor. You know, here was, I hadn't applied or anything. And here was a dean calling me to come and teach. And it was uh, an adjunct position. I was going to come mm -hmm. and teach one semester of university choir. I mean, one course per semester. Mm -hmm. So I did that first semester, just university choir. Second semester, they said, well, would you do a section of conducting and would you do a madrigal ensemble? And then the second year, Gus Polimus, my colleague, got ill. And so I took his section of, choral, of, of basic conducting. So before I knew it, I was teaching a full-time load. And, uh, and that continued for, I guess, 27 years. <laughs> were, were you still doing your doctorate through those years? Well, that's another story. So <laughs> what was happening was that spring, the spring before that, um, I, I had always thought that children uh, had to be taught how to become musicians and that at some point in time, they would become advanced enough to become a musician. And I'm embarrassed to say to some degree that my wife, who teaches elementary vocal music, had been teaching that for a long time. <laughs> and, and she had produced lots of great choirs in her elementary school. And so in the spring of 1986, uh, there was an ACDA convention in Indianapolis. And I got this letter. I was conducting the Unitarian Church Choir. And I got this letter from the director of the Chicago Children's Choir saying, we've been invited to come and sing at the ACDA convention, but we need help with our busing. And would you be willing to homestay our kids? And I thought, well, 
I don't know anything about children's choirs and I don't know anything about the Chicago children's choir. Mm -hmm. And at that time, the way we bought music, I know that's hard to believe, but I would drive to Chicago or <laughs> Carl Fisher and spend a full day going through boxes of music playing in, in the practice room until I chose the repertoire for the following year. So I said, well, I'm coming up to Carl Fisher. Why don't I stop by your rehearsal, which was in Hyde Park, which is the South, um, suburb area of, of uh, Chicago. Well, I got lost. And uh, as Obama would tell you, that is not a great neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> it's ghetto. It's like a peninsula around Hyde Park. And it's all ghetto on all three sides and very high crime area. I got lost. I thought for sure I'm going to be mugged. I can't find my way. Finally, I found the congregation or the Unitarian Church there. And I was afraid to get out of the car because there were all these big thug looking guys around. And so mm -hmm. finally I got out and someone went right into the church and I thought, oh, what's going to go on here? And before I knew it, they're all sitting down and singing in a children's choir. <laughs> they were singing Rayfon Williams, Lyndon Lee. And I sat there with my jaw open and thought, thinking, you know what? This children's choir is the ticket out of this ghetto for these kids. Wow. That, that choir provided their shoes, the red jacket, their shirt, and it was their way of escaping poverty. And so I said, you bet we'll invite you down. And so the, mm -hmm. the choir came down, sang at ACDA, got a standing ovation, were phenomenal uh, musically. And afterwards, Doreen Rao was awarding them a plaque. And I sat in the back of the room and thought, you know, we don't have anything like that in Indianapolis. Maybe... Maybe I should, I'm starting my doctorate. I'm going to teach at Butler. Maybe if I could find like 75 kids and start a choir, it would provide a little income for me. And it's something to be good for the city and bring kids from various neighborhoods and religious and social economic traditions together. And that would be a great thing. So the truth was I little, knew little or nothing about the child's voice. I, I was professionally trained as mm -hmm, a mm -hmm. conductor of adult choirs, high school choirs. I, I conducted middle and high school choirs for years and orchestras. So I did a little trip down to Indiana University to visit with Mary Getze. And she was teaching the, the, the child, she had the IU Children's Choir and she was teaching children's choir techniques, et cetera. And I went into her office, sat down on a couch, I'll never forget it, and was there for three hours. And I was asking her questions like, what I know about the adult voice, does that also match up what I would do with a mm -hmm. child's voice? How is a child's voice different than an adult voice? How would we teach that differently and so forth? And I left that, that office that day with a stack about 24 inches high of octavos for <laughs> me to look through. And um, I met, there was a, she just passed away actually. Her name was Kathy Smith and she taught at Butler. And she had a tiny little choir called the Butler University Children's Choir. It's about 30 kids. And so I asked her if, since she was be, gonna be leaving and I was coming the next fall, I wondered if she would recommend those kids and maybe that could become a nucleus to start mm -hmm. the Indianapolis mm -hmm. Children's Choir. And she said, well, we need to have lunch. So we went to the garden house at the Indianapolis Museum. Mm -hmm. That Remember that nice yep. little restaurant that used to be there? And she sat down and she looked me square in the eye and she said, before I would do anything, I want to know, are you going to fix, uh, teach fixed dough or movable dough? <laughs> and I thought, what a weird question to ask. And my background was contrary to what kids really need. When I was an undergraduate, I had Eastman trained 
music theory instructors. And we learned how to sight read by singing numbers. Mm-hmm. And then I did a lot of summer work at the, at, the, um, at the Colorado Aspen Music Festival. And all my teachers there were from Juilliard and I learned fixed dough. So the way I sight read was either with numbers or fixed dough. And I said to her, well, I think I'll probably use fixed dough. And she said, well, I don't think I'd recommend kids to your program then. Because I wow. think movable dough is the, a better way to teach kids how to sight read. She said, I recommend you do some Kodai training. Well, at this point, knowing that I wanted to start a choir and knowing that I knew little or nothing about it, I was a sponge. And so in the next year, approximately, I, I took Kodai training. I became a certified Kodai teacher in the next couple of years at IU. I took all of Mary Gessie's coursework, child voice, how to develop a children's choir. I studied with Jean Ashworth Bartle and with the Toronto Children's Choir. I went up to St. Thomas and studied with Joan Gregoric. I went and took the Doreen Rao choral music experience training, became a master teacher. I mean, I had to do some quick learning. And what I found out was that you don't have to wait till you're an adult to become a great musician. That in fact, an 11 year old child can be an artist can be a great musician. And that's all a matter of how we approach and how we teach kids. And that takes me back to that Suzuki training. When people would say, mm-hmm. you teach elementary strings, how in the world can you stand all that screeching? Well, guess what? You teach them correctly and they don't screech. Right. They make beautiful sounds right from the beginning. You know, when, when uh, I think one of the most moving experiences I ever had in my life was uh, being in a gigantic gymnasium in Stevens Point in the summer the American uh, Suzuki Institute. And I think there were over 500, maybe more than that, kids all playing the Bach double violin concerto. You know, it was this glorious sound and all these little bitty kids, some four years old, some six years old, some 12, you know, that children have an incredible capability of being artistic. And that has become the foundation that the, the way to build tone, the way to build beauty, the way, way to build phrasing, the way to sing from your heart, the way to be artistically expressive, which I learned back from the Suzuki days, became the cornerstone of what we did in the Indianapolis Children's Choir. They weren't kids in training. We were in the process of being artistic. Even if it was a simple unison song, or even if it was a two-part song, we were going to go as far as we could to be artistic. But I also didn't ignore the fact that they needed to learn to read. And so with that, I created through the Kodai method, a curriculum. Um, and then I, uh, I surrounded myself with strong Kodai teachers. Ruth Dwyer is really the one who developed mm-hmm. the curriculum for ICC, but I'm the one that hired her and wanted her to do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so we knew if we were doing this choir and we were choosing that music, the reason we were choosing it is because those kids were learning one flat, F major, and they were learning G major, one sharp, and that fit into the context. And they were learning Tahiti, which that fit into that context, that all the music that we did fit into a sort of sense of curriculum because Kodai teachers have a three-phase process. They prepare the child to learn, they present the material, and then they reinforce the material. And where most music teachers go wrong is they forget the prepare part. You know, the worst thing you can do is hand a piece of advanced music to a student and say, let's read this in solfege. And they, they get lost after the fifth syllable and they think, I can't do this, I hate solfege. Well, it's because it wasn't prepared. A child mm-hmm. should never have to sing something they're not ready to sing or play something they're not ready to play. 
that it's all a matter of careful preparation. And I learned a lesson, a really great lesson. I was watching Mary Getze on Saturdays. I'd observe the IU Children's Choir. And one fall, this is when she was writing a lot of music for the Boozy and Hawks series. And one fall, she was teaching away. And all of a sudden, she stopped suddenly and went, full the riddle, all the riddle, hey, ding, da. And the kids looked around, and she just went right on. And they thought, what was that? And then about two, three weeks later, she stopped and went, full the riddle, all the riddle, hey, ding, do, and just went right on. Didn't ask them to respond, didn't tell them what it was. It was perplexing to them. The, the year went on, the semester went on. Come February, she handed out a piece called Old Carry On Crow. And when they saw full the riddle, all the riddle, hey, ding, do, they were so <laughs> that's what you were doing. I, now we know what you were doing. That Brilliant. was masterful preparation because she knew in October that they were not going to be able to do full the riddle, all the riddle, hey, ding, do, unless they were prepared to do it. And so that's the secret to good teaching is to know where you're headed, prepare for the learning, teach the learning in an inquisitive way, not jam it down and te test them and make them feel inferior, but let it be always a process of joyful exploration. If there's joyful exploration, the learning will always progress. Mm. And so, you know, I'm so thankful to those people that helped me, Gene Sinor, the Kodai instructor and Mary Getze and Dr. Suzuki and all those other people that I learned from uh, helped me blaze in a path that I hope, even in spite of the pandemic, will continue. I'm sure it will. Hey, I want to go back to uh, this, uh, was it Kathy Smith? Uh, yeah. And, you know, you said, uh, would she recommend? So at some point, did she recommend uh, her she kids to you? And, and so how many, how many students and what were the out age of, ranges there? Out of the 35, they were roughly students in the fifth, sixth, seventh grade, I would say. Out of the 35, I think about 25 or so joined the choir. And I still communicate with three or four of those kids. Mm. And this was, what, nine, 1986. So, you know, in fact, one of those kids is currently teaching at the Interlochen Academy wow. up in Interlochen <laughs> through the years He's, uh, mm -hmm. in, in the high school teaching. Mm -hmm. um, one, one of them, Sybil Roll, has been all over the world. I think she's teaching in Madagascar now and very fluent in French. I mean, these kids have done extraordinary things. But yeah, Kathy and I remain very good friends. She, she went and taught then at Webster University in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And um, she was really, really great. And, and so the program grew from there. I didn't know how to start a children's choir. I mean, having never taught one, didn't know where to begin. And at the time I wanted to do this, there were probably, my guess is eight or 10 in the United States. It was a mm -hmm. pretty new phenomenon. There, was, uh, there were a couple of boy choirs around, famous boy choirs, Pittsburgh Boy mm -hmm. Choir and the American Boy Choir, which had been the Columbia Boy Choir. And there was one in Baltimore and, and there was one in Chicago and just a few scattering. So I didn't have much of a model to go from. And so I um, went to the supervisor of music at IPS and I asked him, how would you start a children's choir? And he said, well, I think what I would do is a festival. What I do is contact all the music teachers in IPS and tell me want to do a festival and send them out the music and let them kind of learn the music and then bring them together on one day and have a festival and sing and then recruit your singers from there. Mm 
I thought, mm-hmm. that's a great idea. So I'm driving home. I know exactly what I'm going to do until I'm almost home. And I go, well, wait a minute. How would I know what kind of music to send them? I don't know mm-hmm. these kids from Adam. I don't know what their capability is. If I send music that's way too hard, it'll be totally unsuccessful. If I send music that's way too easy, it'll be totally unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. How do I know the right kind of music? And then if I happen to hit that mark, if I got the right music, how do I know they're going to learn it in such a way that when they come together, we can create a musical process? Now, that not, idea is not going to work. So I thought about that for a week or two. I thought, well, you know, if I could get kids to just come for a few days, I could teach the music. And if I am off the mark, I can get harder music or easier music. Mm-hmm. I can match up their abilities to the music, like do a choral festival. And so in June of 1986, I had advertised the music teachers. I had meetings with them and encouraged them to recommend kids. And unbelievable, it was unbelievably successful. Uh, 204 kids came. And oh my we had gosh. A morning session and we had an afternoon session. Um, and it was amazing. We met at the Unitarian Church. We learned music. On uh, Wednesday, all the parents came. We had a big pitch in. That was allowed then. You could actually eat each other's food. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we sold tickets for a concert. And I reserved the auditorium at the Children's Museum. Well, those tickets sold out, like, lickety split. And so I had to schedule two performances because we filled the hall up twice. And out of that 204 kids, I think about 185 or something like that auditioned for the choir. It was remarkable. It was very successful. On Wednesday, the St. Louis Children's Choir came through. Ethel Sparfeld did a concert for them so they could see what a children's choir could be. And the parents were excited. Then we opened up auditions and there were brothers and sisters that wanted to come. And so I think we started with, I don't remember them, 220 or something like that in the very first year. It was bigger than I ever dreamt. I thought I'd be lucky to get 75 kids. Well, then that grew to 340 and then 375. And before I knew it, we were over a thousand. So the program grew very, very quickly, not because of me specifically, but because of the teachers in the area, because of the timing. It was something that was in the right period of time. And because the kids were very successful. And what was weird is that, um, the way I got the funding for the children's choir was that was right at, right before the Pan Am Games. And I applied the Lilly Endowment through the symphonic choir because I was on the symphonic choir board and received $25,000 to start the choir. So wow. it was funded properly in the beginning. And um, because of that, I, you know, things could really take off. We then sang the opening ceremonies with the Disney people, 800 singers uh, wow. for the, at, at the track for the opening ceremonies of the Panem Games and the closing ceremonies, where we sang back home again in Indiana in ja- gospel style with a gospel choir. It was pretty amazing. And then the very next year, the National Music Educators Conference came to Indianapolis and we prepared and sang that fall uh, at... Um, the Hyatt Regency Ballroom for a national audience of music educators. It was called MENC at that time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that took off. We were then nationally known and it just went from there. I think we sang for four or five national ACDA conventions, national music librarians, national ORF conventions, national Kodai conventions. I mean, it 
we just did a lot of singing and traveling after that. It was quite successful. Well, that's an understatement. <laughs> quite successful. You know, yeah. I, I've been so fortunate to actually witness uh, firsthand because being part of, um, well, I just drew a blank, the, the annual oh, Christmas. Angel Sing. Angel Sing. You, you played that many years. Uh, yes. And I'm so disappointed, of course, you know, we're going to miss, we're going to miss this year, but uh, you know, and of course, Josh Petty, who I'm going to talk to tomorrow. Uh, but now I was, I was so glad to be able to perform under your baton and of course, Ruth and Cheryl West, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and several others, but not just to be under the baton, but to see how you rehearse. Right. It's not it wasn't just the performance. So I've been able to witness and I know it's not at the beginning stages of, of learning these pieces, but after everything's been fine tuned, but still to be able to witness the relationship from the podium to these kids, sometimes what is it, 800 kids or it seems like uh, yeah. up there. Yeah. And it, this is not something that you get uh by somebody coming into the choir at 12, 13, 14 years old. I mean, this is this is because that relationship started how young? How, what's the earliest they start? They start at nine years old at fourth grade. And usually they started with my wife, who taught the beginning. Oh. <laughs> but, you know, I, but I, I look at that, and, and you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, uh, talking about that group in Chicago, and it gave them a sense, uh, gave them shoes, gave them a shirt, gave them a place, uh, you said, out of poverty. But it's community. Yeah. Really. I mean, it's a place to belong. And you look at, uh, I mean, what a great place to show up, I, I would think, for an yeah. ICC rehearsal, whatever, whichever choir it would be in. Yeah. And just to see how well these kids get along with each other and no, uh, the joy they have with the music. And, and that's, that's, to me, the really remarkable thing is the joy that these kids have at, at every stage, you know, I'm sitting there with my trumpet while these, while these little kids, you know, file in behind me. And then, you know, your, your big kids choir, I can't, rem- sorry, I don't remember the names of all the levels, no, but they have lots of different names. Yeah. But uh, I mean, it's just, it is it's, that you, you hit it absolutely right. What keeps kids in a choir? Yeah. Nice music. Yeah. Touring. That's important, but it's actually the close friendships. And mm-hmm. so we learned early on that if all you did was rehearse music and sing well, the choir would fall apart because what really drew those kids together was their relationship. And um, we had lots of different kinds of kids, all different kinds, but many, many times I would hear from kids, you know, at school, I'm kind of a little out of it. I don't always like the stuff they like and, and I, I'm maybe active in sports or not, or, but when I'm in my choir, most of the kids don't want to be there. And they, but when I come to this place, mm-hmm. I'm with kids who love to sing and they love what I'm doing. And it's funny because I've seen wedding photos. I remember one in, in, in Vanderbilt where all six female attendants and all six male attendants <laughs> were ICC kids. <laughs> you know, they, even through college, they've remained. And right now, yesterday, I think, was the day of giving a Tuesday give me day yes all kinds of alumni talking about how they got involved and why they're involved and how they have lifetime friendships still today that some of those kids made their closest lifelong friends mm-hmm. in that setting which is just an added benefit to what we did musically yeah uh, 
I think about what that does for the kids, but also what does that do for the community? And, and, and not just, you know, the donut counties around here, but I mean, it really is Indianapolis and beyond. I mean, yeah. you were reaching kids from, from every, and still are reaching kids from every, yeah. every part of the town. Yeah, I remember one kid in particular that uh, lived way in a really bad area on East 38th Street, and he'd get on the bus, and he'd come in all by himself, and he'd get to my office maybe an hour and a half before rehearsal. He'd sit there and do his homework and do, go through rehearsal, and then he'd wait for the bus. I didn't come by the Butler campus very often, and go take the bus all the way home. He'd do that twice mm -hmm. a week, every week. It was amazing. We had two kids once. The mother drove them from right at the Illinois-Indiana border. And she drove them all the way to Indianapolis twice a week. I mean, it was, it was amazing, the commitment that, that we would see from these kids. I remember one year we sang for Yuletide and we sang 21 performances in the month of December. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now mm -hmm. they didn't all sing all 21. They each sang uh, six. We were rotating. Okay. But even still, what a commitment to right? with these kids. Yeah, it was amazing. And So here we, you are. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, when we went to ACDA, one time it was in Louisville, one time in San Diego, one time in Miami, and what was the last one? Um, there were four different ones. Oh, um, San Antonio. Every time we went to sing, those kids earned their own money to go. I mean, they were, it wasn't paid. Now, not all of them. Some of them we helped if they needed help. But the thought that a, a program would take your entire choir at whatever expense it was to fly to San Antonio, sing the lodging, the meals and fly back. And that was done on the backs of, of those kids and their parents in this community. It was pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. I was gonna say, here we are, this would be 34 years later, right? You said 86 was the, the first year yeah, for that? Yeah. yeah, you're good at math. Did you? Well, <laughs> I did get a degree from Butler, you know, so let's hope hey, so. <laughs> when did you graduate? Well, I like to tell people that college was the best 17 years of my life. <laughs> so it, I was I, asking, was I there while you were a student? You were. In fact, uh, um, I started college in 84 and I finished my master's in 2001. I, I, I went back to Butler just in time to finish my degree, but you were there when I started in 93 and I remember, and of course, Stan Derusha was the orchestra conductor at the time, yeah. but you conducted, and, and I don't know, you'll remember, of course, if it was the Butler, it must've been a Butler group, but we did Chichester Psalms yeah. and something else. And we, I think we did it at North Church. I think uh, maybe Haydn Tadeum in Chichester Psalms. I don't remember. Yeah. Uh, well, I remember the Bernstein for sure. Yeah, But what I remember is, of course, uh, I think the trumpet has a sustained uh, written uh, A. Uh, yeah. And you were waiting, you were waiting to release, you were waiting for me to take a breath. And I, and of course, <laughs> I was looking at you thinking, how long do you want to go <laughs> on this? I, I can keep going. That's a treacherous little path there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but that is, you know, that's ingrained in my memory because it was, that was such a treat. And of course, Stan, now you talk about preparation. Stan was excellent at preparing that orchestra yeah. for whatever yeah. piece. Yeah. And, and I credit him with, with uh, you know, I, I feel like I've become a very good orchestral, you know, I'm a responsible musician. I know how to prepare. I know how to <laughs> behave. Most of the time I know how to behave. Um, 
but yeah, that was, and I don't remember the year. It must have been mid nineties uh, yeah. that 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 happened. But it was a great experience. Um, but yeah, so thirty four years. Did you ever imagine that it would reach this scope? No, I never did, uh, and it was never my goal. Actually, <laughs> the odd thing is. I've said this so many times, and maybe this is changing now that I'm retired. I do more reflection than I had before, but uh, I think there are are personality types that live always in the future. I've had a lot of young conductors come to me, and how do I plan my career like yours? How can I get to do all states? How can I do these things? How did you plan all this? I said, well, I never did. I never, ever did plan it. (laughs) And then there are all these people that think about all the wonderful things they've done, and they live in their past. Well, I think great music making happens in the present. And the odd thing is that it's been an enormously wonderful journey, but I I think I lived in the present the whole time. Um, It's so strange that um, (laughs) sometimes I'll see, well, this is a great piece. I ought to do this piece. And I find out, oh, I did it eight years ago. (laughs) I don't even remember that I did it. Um, That happened to me last fall. I conducted... um, the Durfley Requiem at Florida International University in, in Miami. And we needed a companion piece so we didn't end the concert so sad. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, let's do the Randall Bass Gloria. I just happened to see it on YouTube. Mm-hmm. So I ordered it and, and Javier Mendoza, who was my former student at Butler said, well, you actually did that when I was a student at Butler. <laughs> and I said, well, we did it and rejoice. Okay, I had forgotten. <laughs> So anyway, your question was, did you ever imagine that this would be what it, and the answer is no. I, I just kind of went with it year by year, facing the challenges, facing the, the successes and loving the kids, feeling sad when they left and f- meeting new faces every year. Um, it, it was just a journey for me. And, but I, I, I think I enjoyed the presence of it throughout that journey. You know, I Not- spoke to Adam Madoni yesterday <laughs> and, and, and I, well, and, I, and I'm talking to Susan Kitterman tomorrow because, okay. you know, the, these two programs and, and, you know, of course, there's the symphonic choir. But I mean, these two programs so focused on youth have yeah. given so much uh, to the, the community. The thing is that my daughter, Anya, played in Susan's orchestra and her daughter sang in my choir. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> funny. Time. And, you know, you were talking about playing Chichester. Well, I met Adam a few years ago when, when he got involved with the, what was the New World. Now I think it's called Indianapolis Youth Orchestra. Something. Yep. Anyway, Adam's a sweet guy. We were talking and he said, well, you know, I actually played under your baton. And I said, oh, you did? And he said, yeah, do you remember that time we did Mozart Requiem right after 9-11? And I went, oh, my God, I'll never forget. And he said, yeah, I was in the trombone section. Wow. <laughs> and, and also he did Chichester and he did um, Haydn today. I think one or two or three years, Susan and I would pick two major works and she'd conduct one and I'd conduct the other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's a long, wonderful parallelism there. Well, it, but I, I mentioned Adam too, because not only is he now, of course, leading the IYO, but yeah. he is one of those who graduated, who, who aged out of one of these programs. And, you know, he talks about how special it is. And of course you see that uh, when, when people, they realize it's their last performance with a with the ICC or the IYO and but then you get to see the opportunities for them to return and my goodness how many people return like at Angels Sing or Rejoice right you get the opportunity to to come and join the the choir Um, 
Yeah, it, it's got to be a hard thing to leave behind. Well, you know, but, I, I'll never forget one tour, you know, the, the year would end and they'd sing Friends and they'd have the graduation ceremony, but then we'd go on tour that summer. So the real last concert would yeah. be the last concert of tour. And I'll never forget one year we had this great European tour and we ended up in Paris and we were singing at the American church in Paris. And we were singing pretty joyful music. It was great music. And all of these older kids were boo-hooing. They're all crying. And the audience is going, why are those kids all crying? <laughs> well, it was their last concert. That's what it was. You know, it gets pretty mm -hmm. emotional to leave. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, the, the people that you brought alongside you through the years, you mean, you've already mentioned Ruth. Uh, and she's still with the, the group. She is. She's been there longer than I was now. And... Uh, you know, of course, Cheryl West, uh, bless her heart. I just think remarkable, she was a remarkable person. I learned so much from her. You know, mm -hmm. what I really learned from her is you can be happy and you can be nice and you can care and you can have an impact on kids. But until you just love them so much mm -hmm. that they think of you almost as a parent, that's mm -hmm. when you really change your lives. And she did that with, mm -hmm. with those kids. They still to this day on her birthday, I see all kinds of posts and they called her Mama West and they talk about sparkles and all that. I mean, she really, mm -hmm. really changed lives in a big, mm -hmm. big way. Mm -hmm. It's so, such a tragic loss. Yeah. Uh, when did Josh become part of the picture? You know, Josh studied with me for 15 years. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Who's yes. That? You could be a, a sitar player in India in that time. <laughs> Well, the way it happened, and he'll tell you this story too, but he came to Butler as a freshman and I met him. I think he might've been in my ME 101 class or whatever. Mm. And he came down, I think in the fall and said, Mr. Leck, I've seen your rehearsals and I wanna be a children's choir director. And I said, well, that's great, Josh. You'd be, you'd be a fabulous director. And he said, I wanna learn how to conduct from you. And I said, well, that's great when you're a junior, you can take basic conducting in the second semester, you can take choral conducting. He said, no, I wanna learn now. I said, well, that's pretty odd. I don't normally take private students until they've had two basic mm -hmm. semesters of conducting, but you really wanna learn. He said, yes, I really do. So I took him on as a private student. Mm -hmm. He studied with me that year, the next year, when it came to his junior year, he tested out of basic conducting. Well, <laughs> he had to play every example in the Huntsberger book. And he did that. I mean, he mm -hmm. knew that stuff. And so he became a senior music ed, student taught. And uh, then there was an opening for a graduate assistantship with Butler. I said, well, do you want to be my graduate assistant? He said, I'd love that. So he stayed for two more years, got a master's degree at Butler. Then he went and taught in Zionsville for five years. Mm -hmm. But during that time, he was at my side the whole time as my assistant. Uh, conductor. And so he would do a piece here, a piece there, pretty soon a small concert here. And eventually then he took over one of the two choirs primarily. And um, so when he, after five years of teaching, I could see my way to bringing him on full time. And so he came on full time. And the reason I brought him on was to create some whole new initiatives. And we, we created um, a, a, a teacher's council so that we'd have better communication with music teachers, uh, doing more outreach with uh, underserved kids and so on. He, he 
did he did all kinds of things, started new programs, initiated this and that. And it was about that time I um, was thinking about when should I retire? And I sometimes thought, I'm never going to retire. I'm just going to die standing on the podium. I'm going to do that <laughs> the rest of my life. And I thought about it to some degree. And actually, a friend of mine who was born on the same month of the same year in the same week, that she had retired. And she said, Henry, don't cheat yourself of what you can do in your life once you've retired. And so about that time, we had had a, I think an independent study done by the Lilly Endowment of the organization. And they talked a lot about planned succession because what uh, the most vulnerable time for any organization, if it's founder led, is when the founder leaves. And I saw it happen left and right because about the time I was thinking of retiring, so were a whole bunch of other children's choir directors. And sometimes they would retire, but not let go. So the person that came in smothered and couldn't succeed and couldn't make changes. Other times they hadn't thought about it, hadn't prepared, the organization just fell apart. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, you know, I really need to do this right because I'm probably only gonna do it once. And that's plan my succession. And so about three years in advance, Josh knew that he was going to be my successor. Mm -hmm. The board had approved his succeeding me. So for the last year or so, he really did the bulk of my work because mm -hmm. I wanted him to see the successes and failures and be able to think about what the future would bring. And I didn't really know what he would do with the choir, but I knew absolutely that it was essential that once I said it was his choir, I had to get the hell out of the way. I had to leave. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have to leave the city exactly, but I chose to. I did my last concert on April 30th and May 3rd, I moved into a new home in Bloomington. Wow. <laughs> so I got out of town. And to this day, I mean, Josh, and he calls me his best friend and I think it's a, it's a mutual friendship. He and mm -hmm. I really love each other so much, but um, I'm very careful not to give him advice unless it's asked for. And he's, he's not very often asked me very much about musical things because he's making those decisions and he's making them well. But often he's come to me with administrative challenges. Like, mm -hmm. what do I do about this personnel issue? Or what do I do about this budgeting issue? What do you think about this programmatic change? Do you think I should change the name of some of the choirs? I mean, what about outfits? What if we changed outfits? You know, he's asked me lots of questions and where he's asked, I've given him advice. And uh, mm -hmm. So hopefully I've done that right. And I think I have because of all the people I've seen trying to figure out what to do during this pandemic, he has been the most flexible and the most creative of any that I've known. And part of that is that uh, he changed some things when I left. For instance, I insisted that when you get kids there twice a week, they learn more than twice as much because you have the regularity. It's like, do you practice piano a half hour every day or do you practice one time for an hour and a half, you know, that regularity reinforcement, they grow faster. But what he was seeing was that some parents were growing fatigued from driving from wherever they lived in Fishers or Greenwood or Beach Grove or wherever to the Butler campus twice a week was wearing on them. So almost immediately he created a system where they did online learning one night and they did in-person learning the second night which was ideal for, I mean, you almost think it was planning for a pandemic, you know, that right. so <laughs> responsibility, but the parents only had to come there one night a week and it was a little mm -hmm. longer rehearsal and they had to keep both nights open. And so right before a Christmas concert or whatever, they'd, they'd come for two nights, but because of that kind of forward thinking 
and because he's younger than I am and he has enormous technical you know, capability, I would have had trouble teaching virtually, figuring out how to get kids learning music and being responsible and being interactive you know, on the nights that they weren't in the building. He was able to figure all that out and do it effectively. And so now he's come up with all kinds of creative ways to keep the program going. I think the program is smaller now than it was before. And he's worried about that. He said, Henry, how do I keep up your legacy? And I said, Josh, it's not my legacy. It's now your legacy. Mm-hmm, and if mm-hmm. you can make that choir program profitable and successful and achieve the artistic levels you want to achieve, and you have one third the kids for now, that's absolutely fine. We're not about numbers as much as we are about it, the quality of experience. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. I, I support him fully. And I, I think he's done incredible things, really incredible things. Well, you know, and I can speak to have having played under his baton as well, and more than a capable uh, conductor. I mean, and not just conductor. I mean, he's he's so expressive. Mm-hmm. It's not just you know making a pattern up there. I mean, he right. really, and uh, and again, that relationship from the podium to the kids. I see that just as I, I saw that between you and the kids, and I think. Um, and I've seen this too, you know, in the changing of the guard, as it were. Yeah, there's there's always a, a dip. Yeah. And and uh, but um, no, I'm I'm thrilled. Of course, the pandemic. Who knows what's going to come out of this? But I'm I'm thrilled to see that he's you know at the helm now. And uh, you think, know, w- was he the obvious choice? Yes. For that. Yes, he was. Yeah. Um, you know, some people might have said, "Well, you'd have been much better off to do a national search and bring in the." highest power replacement you could bring. But I wasn't as concerned about uh, numbers or how do I say this? I was concerned about retaining some culture that was already there. And to bring in somebody new that was maybe demanding, but had a completely different personality and approach, it would have thrown the program sideways. But um, while Josh is very innovative and, and chooses interesting music, a lot of what he does has been consistent. He's been very wise about changing little things, but retaining consistent things. Mm-hmm. So the program didn't suddenly turn from green to orange, but it, it has has had little shades of alteration, which I think have, have been good choices. Well, and he's been a part of Indianapolis. So there's that part, I think that's important as well. I mean, just as much as you were from Indianapolis and you right. know, it's this is home, this was home. You bring in a Boston person and it would be very different for a while. Right. Yeah. His wife was an IC singer, ICC singer. He met her oh. because of ICC. His mother-in-law is, is the managing uh, financial person wow. of, of the organization. So there's a lot of, yeah. uh, what do I call, familial connection. <laughs> yes. So let's talk about retirement, which you have and you haven't. <laughs> I mean, you're... You're just as busy now, right? I mean, I, I really thought when I retire, nobody's going to want to hire me because I'm uh, past tense. And the ex- actually, the opposite occurred. And my advice to many people who retire is be careful. Don't take so much on. <laughs> I found out I was traveling more and conducting more and away from home more um, and doing way too much. You know, the, the stuff was coming at me left and right. And, and so, over the period of the last four years, I was trying to find a way to wean myself of these professional obligations. And uh, as an example, I was conducting in at Eastman School of Music on March 6th of this year, 
I returned on the 7th and the pandemic hit in the next, next week. week. Yep. And I was ill for two weeks. I don't know if I had COVID or not, but the guy I was working with went in the hospital with COVID. Oh. <laughs> and the, so I missed the Music for All Festival that was mid, mid-March and they had to, half the choirs weren't able to come and the other third of them were sent home. It, it, they had to stop the festival in the middle. And right. then the following week, I was supposed to be at Carnegie Hall, and that was canceled. So everything came to a screeching halt. And I've not conducted since. I've done lots of other things. But um, I just yesterday got a thing from Minnesota Allstate. They want to know, instead of doing it in April of 21, will I do it in April of 22? And I got a, uh, I had a booking to do uh, Carnegie Hall March 22nd of next year. And now Carnegie is closed through the end of March. So I have very few bookings. And I'm just saying to my wife last night, I think maybe I should contact them and say, it's, you have enough time, find someone else to do that mm -hmm. Minnesota Allstate. Because I'll be 76 in 22. And I don't think they need a 76-year-old man on an Allstate podium. You know, let some younger people do that that, that have, have, need the experience and have the capability. So one of the things that I've always wanted to do with my life uh, was to paint. I've always wanted, I've loved the visual arts, but I've never had the time. And um, as soon as I got here, which was in May, I had bookings throughout the summer and the, the ICC tour, the IYC tour and so on. But starting that fall, I started taking painting classes and I've still taken them. I have a class tomorrow night and I now um, have some terrible paintings most of them actually are terrible <laughs> some that are sort of good some that are pretty good and a few that are really great uh, as an example i was totally shocked last week i went up to indianapolis uh, there's a place called the harrison center it's kind of on north delaware and there's a oh, show there yeah. called the the i'm a member of the indiana plein air painters association plein air is a french word that means outdoors so i paint outdoors mm -hmm. every week mm -hmm. And I belong to this and they requested paintings from members. So I sent a painting up and it's, it's hanging there. Well, my wife and I went down and there are probably 50 paintings or so. And I know they put a little red dot on a painting when it sells. And um, so I saw about six or seven red dots and I'm walking along. Also, I noticed one of my paintings sold Fantastic. For, for $625. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it. So I actually now, um, I tried, I've really tried to keep track of paintings I have done, some I've given away. I've given three or four of the ICC for fundraisers, mm -hmm. for auctions and so on. And I've given some to relatives and to friends and I've sold some. I have uh, some in a gallery. Um, in fact, I'll be in two galleries in Bloomington starting this next month, but um, try to keep track of them. So I've kind of started a cataloging system and I've put them on a website, which is henryleck.com. Mm -hmm. So there are about now, I think they're not all my paintings are there, but there are about 96 paintings. Mm -hmm. There some are for sale, some aren't available, some are already sold, but um, that's become a passion in my life now. I, I paint regularly. Watercolor, oil, both? Just oil. I, I really love oil paint, um, mainly because you can paint terribly and just walk away uh, for a day and come back or two and paint right over it and, and fix it. With watercolor, you crunch it up and throw it away and start over. Right. And I figure it's been hard enough for me to learn one media 
or medium, I should say. So uh, maybe someday I'll adventure into gouache or watercolor or acrylic. But right now I'm just an oil painter. What about uh, on the musical side? What about arranging and composing? Um, I've never been much of a composer. I've been sort of half-assed. Um, I don't, are you allowed to say that word on the radio? A half well, yeah. Completion, <laughs> uh, arranger. So I, you know, I publish a lot of pieces. I think I maybe have 800 or so with Hal Leonard and another mm -hmm. six or 800 with Colaboche. And what I mainly am good at is editing. Um, mm. What I, I get typically 120 manuscripts a year and I take them in, I catalog, catalog them on an Excel spreadsheet, uh, the name of the composer, the co composition name, the voicing of it, when I received it, the email, et cetera. And then I kind of rate them. And typically what I will do is shrink that list of 120 down to about 50. And then I meet with Hal Leonard people and we shrink that to about 30 and I publish about 30 a year. Mm -hmm. I have written some pieces like the, the main anthem for Music for, for All is called, um, uh, what the, I wrote the anthem for that. <laughs> I don't remember what the name of it is now, but um, I think it's called Music for All. That's the name of it. Mm -hmm. But um, so I, I've arranged folk songs and stuff like that, but mainly I edit pieces for other composers. And I, I can usually tell um, if a piece is inappropriate in terms of language versus the difficulty of the music. You know, for instance, mm -hmm. somebody will write this really complex four-part treble piece of, about daisies and dancing through the flowers and I, or, you know, some children's nursery rhyme. And I go, these things don't fit. You know, you, this, is, this is music for a middle school kid and they don't like nursery rhymes. So you need to find challenging text for them. So mm -hmm. I can usually tell if a piece is too long or too short, if it doesn't go anywhere or if it's too trite. Um, and then what I'll sometimes do is ask them to modify it. You know, this is a six minute piece. It's going to be too long to print and too boring in a concert. So reduce it to 3.4 minutes or something mm -hmm. like that, that it'll make it more marketable. And then what I have done successfully in the past was get it into print and then promote it. I'll go out and do reading sessions at, at state conventions and national mm -hmm. conventions mm -hmm. and talk about logical ways you can use this piece pedagogically how it can teach certain elements, et cetera. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, the odd thing though, is that with the pandemic, none of last spring's pieces got promoted or sold. Oh. So all of the, my editing stuff is kind of on hiatus right now mm -hmm. until mm -hmm. we can get the choral world back on its feet again. Yeah, well, and the instrumental world as well. I mean, we're all, we're all in limbo yeah, uh, at the exactly moment. Right. Exactly right. So, um, I, I want to ramp up a little bit, but before we do that, um, you want to ramp up or wrap up? No, wrap, wrap up. <laughs> okay. Uh, and another highlight with ICC is that um, one time we produced our own opera, and it was an undertaking like I've never thought I'd ever do or think of, but um, has a long story. But um, Mel's and Bren Simon lost their son. And they were talking with the rabbi and said, we'd like to do something to honor our son. And the rabbi Sasso said, well, my son composes music. Maybe you should have an opera written and dedicate it to Max. And so we met several times with Bren and she not only commissioned the composer, David Sasso to write the piece, she, for 200 kids, 
she had every costume hand sewn, including custom shoes in St. Petersburg, Russia. And all those were sent in crates. She had the set design. We hired someone to design a set and build it for Clues Hall. Mm. And we hired a professional orchestra in the pit. And um, I don't know ultimately what she paid, but it was close to $200,000, I think, for the production of this opera. Mm. And uh, we performed it that one weekend, twice or three times, and that was it. It was only done once. But um, Michelle Jarvis, who you know was in the dance department, then moved on to associate mm -hmm. dean and, and so on. She's still uh, in administration. She did all the choreography for it wow. and it spent endless nights rehearsing and all that. It was very exciting. and and very incredible. Mm -hmm. Now I'll tell you one last story. And that is the first time we ever were invited to ACDA to perform mm -hmm. nationally was at San Antonio. And we did maybe the most phenomenal program I've ever put together before or since. It had um, contemporary Canadian music. It had a Renaissance art song. It had uh, a eight part Randall Thomas piece. And I mean, it was everything. And it was a phenomenal performance. And I was so thrilled after the last one that I hugged every, I went off stage and I hugged every kid as they came off the stage. And they said, well, they're still clapping. There's a standing ovation. And I went out, back out. And I think they said there was a 13 minute standing ovation <laughs> for that performance. And, it was on, and people to this day still talk about that performance. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, uh, I have a recording of it, which is terrible. It's a terrible recording, but honest to God, it was probably the best programming that we ever did and some mm -hmm. of the best thing that the, the choir mm -hmm. ever did. Mm -hmm. Now, embarrassing moments. Uh, I guess I've had plenty, but uh, I, one time, I this hasn't the children's choir, but I conducted Rejoice every year for 27 years. And one time I remember in Clues Hall, the men's chorus, which is a lot of men were singing Beta Lehemu, which is a really strong African piece. Well, I had just finished conducting another piece and I went right on to it and I brought them in, but I hadn't given them a pitch. <laughs> <laughs> and is so that important? Went, yeah. And I went, oops. <laughs> and I gave them a pitch and then we went on, but mm -hmm. I thought, oh my gosh, that, that was embarrassing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I've had a few of those moments. Well, uh, as far as recordings go, it, it, would it be possible to share uh, maybe some of the things that you've mentioned? Would it be possible to share some of those? Well, you know, ICC has a whole library of recordings. I think maybe while I was there, I did eight or 10 CDs. And uh, those are now copywritten by ICC. So that's a, a Josh question. Okay. Okay. But I'm sure he wouldn't mind sharing uh, some okay. of those CDs. Terrific. And, I, you know, it just occurred to me, too, we didn't even talk about Canadian brass and the association with them. Yeah. And I've become very good friends with Ronnie Rahm. And, you know, we text and uh, I'm good friends with uh, Aaron, one of his sons. Yeah. But uh, well, what's um, the name of the tuba player? Uh, uh, Chuck, Chuck Dallenbach. Chuck Dallenbach. And he's still there. He's still there. And he was born in Rhinelander, Wisconsin. His dad was a band director, I believe. And he grew up there. And I was born like 12 miles away in Merrill, Wisconsin. <laughs> we have that in common. <laughs> well, I thought he was a Canadian. I, no, I didn't I know that. So. No. I mean, well, well, we have lived then in Canada, but he, he was born in Rhinelander, Wisconsin, I believe. Wow, wow. Um, fabulous group. And that was a remarkable experience to, 
uh, record with them, you know, in the in Airborne and put was that the, just a one a one year? Yes. What happened was um, I became friends with Emily Crocker, and uh, she she was friends with Canadian Brass because they had published instrumental arrangements, mm. but there were some Christmas carols that hadn't been published. So I actually have a, a Canadian Brass mini series of choral pieces that were published by Hal Leonard. And mm -hmm. um, so it was through her that I got to know them. And we then decided, well, we should record some of these carols and let's put a CD together uh, mm -hmm. with the Canadian Brass. And they were gracious to do that. Well, I've talked to Gene Watts since then, uh, and I'm trying to get an interview with Chuck. Uh, Fred Mills, of course, passed away. Uh, the trumpet, and, yes. Yeah. Well, the okay. Trumpet. And so, yeah, and, and the piccolo trumpet, right? And so the thing is, those Canadian brass arrangements, those are not something you can just sit down and read. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, <no. laughs> but those guys, of course, made it sound so easy. Yeah, you know, and uh, but uh, yeah, it's well, still fun to sit down and try to play them. We've we've done a whole bunch of those at oh yeah, at, oh yeah, thing you know, Christmas yeah. tree and angels we've heard on high, and uh, there are a whole bunch of pieces we've done. Yeah, yeah. Um, Henry, I, I want to say this. First of all, it, it's a pleasure to know you, and to and to and to have not just have spoken with you today, but to have worked with you, and mm -hmm. and to witness. Uh, you know, who you are and what you can do. Uh, but I also want to say thank you for everything you've contributed and still contribute to Indianapolis. I, it's just, I think it's phenomenal. Well, and, I appreciate uh, that. And, and uh, the feeling is mutual. I always felt, and I've said this many times, I always felt like Indianapolis supported the choir. Hmm. They supported everything we did. And um, Lillian Dalman from the beginning and all the way through and Crystal DeHaan and you know, the, the mayors, and we've sung for so many of the governor's inaugurations and mayors. I mean, the city has been enormously supportive, and I've been yeah. grateful for that. Did they ever give you a key to the city? No. Oh, well, we're going to <laughs> have to talk to somebody. But I, I am a Sagamore of the Wabash, and I'm oh. uh, a uh, outstanding Indian, Indiana citizen. I, I've gotten mm. enough awards to keep me going for a long time. Yeah. I'm an Indiana living legend. And I got it right after um, uh, Mayor uh, Mitch Daniels. And he said, well, there were two requirements. You had to be living and you had to be present. He said, I'm glad I fulfilled both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's been well, a good, good run. Well, congratulations on a, on a spectacular career. Thanks, and, Larry. Uh, Thanks for all and, you Well, we'll thank you very much. So, well, all right. Take care. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for joining me today for my interview. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to hear more, you can visit patreon.com slash studiohfl. By becoming a supporter, you can have access to content that is exclusively available to my Patreon patrons, which would include excerpts from interviews. I'd also like to remind you to visit Apple Podcast and leave a star rating and a review. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Thanks again for being here and listening, and I hope you come back for another interview next time around.